2013, last year, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or the former Archbishop of Canterbury, um, Lord Carey, said this. He said, Christianity is just a generation away from extinction in Britain. Unless churches make a dramatic breakthrough in attracting young people back to the faith. Telegraph newspaper then um, reported on the speech by saying this. They said, clergy are now gripped by a feeling of defeat. Congregations are worn down by heaviness. And the public simply greets both with rolled eyes and a yawn of boredom. Carey made an impassioned plea for the church to adopt a new ministry stance. He told them that constant internal debates were no more than rearranging furniture when the house is on fire. And the synod responds by voting to set up a committee. <laughs> lots, um, lots we could say to that. Yes, in many cases, true. I'm going to go back there. Buildings are becoming derelict. Pews are emptying, and if you look at the actual figures, although there are new ones recently out as well, you'll see some parts of the church are are growing and thriving and flourishing and expanding and needing new buildings even. But anyway, he's right. Of course Carey is right, in human terms at least. The church is one generation away from extinction. It always is. It always will be. It's true in wider spheres of life as well. Think of all kinds of situations and contexts and examples. Ronald Reagan famously said that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We don't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected and handed on for them to do the same. Because the problem is, in, in these bodies, in this life, if we want something to continue after we've gone, then we've got to pass it on. If we want to leave a legacy, we must train up the next generation. People to surpass us. People to do a better job than we have. That's true with ideas and philosophies and messages. It's true with institutions and organisations. It's a pressing question for all of us, especially those in leadership. Who's going to carry on the work after we've gone? Who do we hand on to? Who's going to outdo us? Especially a question for Paul as he writes his second letter to his little protege, Timothy, in Ephesus. As you go through the letter, we will see there's a real sense of urgency as he writes. It's palpable. I think the urgency is there for a number of reasons. It seems generally the situation in the church in Ephesus where Timothy is kind of a pastor, the situation seems to have gone downhill. It's deteriorated. If If you read 1 Timothy, it's all about healthy church all about healthy leadership, all about healthy structures. Timothy sorting his own priorities out. Because Paul knows that a healthy church that's well-structured and well-organised is a fruitful church. But now in 2 Timothy, it seems to have gone downhill. Why is that? It seems there are external pressures pressing in on the church, firstly. So flick over with me to chapter 4 and verse 14, and you see that Paul writes of this chap... Alexander. 4 verse 14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. You can read something of that in Acts and we will in weeks to come, but people actively seeking to squash the gospel, 
to stop it from going out, to limit its progress, to hinder the message. And there'll be all kinds of equivalents in our, in our age, in our day. As Lord Kerry says, the culture of rolled eyes and a yawn of boredom. To some of the more sinister stuff we've been praying about around the world. Brothers and sisters who, who daily fear being silenced. So external pressures bring this sense of urgency. But it seems sadly, and it's often the case, the real pressures come from within. There are internal pressures in the church. And there was a little germ of it in 1 Timothy. In fact, it was partly why Timothy was put there to minister. Paul said, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. A little germ that has grown and it's spread and flourished. And real people have had their faith shipwrecked. So Paul will write in weeks to come, avoid godless chatter, Timothy, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection's already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Or later, and very famously, he will say to Timothy, the time will come when people won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And the thing about gangrene, and the thing about false teaching, is it grows and it destroys and it kills. There's an urgency because the church is infected from within. It's deteriorated in Ephesus. But more than that, It's deteriorated for Paul as well. As we read through week by week by week, we will sense this is a very human letter. Paul's writing, probably in prison, many think an infamous horrible prison in Rome, which was essentially a hole in the ground, and he is lonely, and he is abandoned by many, he is weak, he is cold, he is pretty sure his time is up. He's pretty sure this is it. So he will say, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And if you're Paul, humanly speaking, what do you do? What does Paul do if he wants the gospel message not to be extinguished? He wants to leave a legacy. He wants to hand the baton of ministry on to the next generation, to be, to be bold, to be faithful, to be trustworthy. When he is no longer around, he wants to know there are people to continue the work. And so Timothy, to Timothy, is a letter all about guarding the gospel. Which means as we begin the series, perhaps with Lord Carey's warning ringing in our ears, we must listen if we want to keep the gospel truth alive. If we want to be those who hand on well to the generations after us. But here's the thing to be clear on. It's not just a way of keeping the club going. It's not just a way of ensuring that church buildings don't go derelict or turn into nightclubs or whatever. 
It's not just a way of us trying to make sure that we're not forgotten in some sense. It's so much more important than that. It's not just keeping a a message alive. This is a message that brings life. First point. Gospel work is about bringing life. Zoom in with me on verse 1 of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see, when the world walks out on the God of life, in comes sin and in comes death. And the danger for us as Christians, we were thinking about it on our day away last Saturday, is we can be squeezed into thinking the Christian faith is is just about offering lifestyle advice. Here's something that you might like to try. It works for me. might make your life a bit better. might make you feel a bit more fulfilled. It makes the journey a bit nicer as we go along. And there are large swathes of the wider church that sadly teach just that kind of message. Jesus is here simply to fulfill you. He is here to help you live your best life now. He helps you to be successful. He helps you to win. And here is Paul in prison. Clear that this message is not a message about personal fulfillment. He's not an added extra that we might like to try. Jesus is everything. In Jesus, Paul says, is the promise of life. This message that we have is God's answer for a broken world. There is nothing else. He has been sent by Jesus, Paul says, with a message about Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that is in his death and resurrection and ascension. And so there is the promise of life, eternal life. And so to say there's an urgency in Paul's writing is a bit of an understatement. This alone is the one true God's one true plan to rescue a broken world and there is nothing else. This is how he brings life to dead people. And Paul is an apostle, a sent one, with this message of life by the will of God, which means he comes with an authority to Timothy, which he passes on. Maybe you're here and you're just kind of looking in on Christian things you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And you're saying, well, what definition of life is Paul talking about? Because from what you've said of him, it doesn't sound like the kind of life I'm that keen on living, really. I'd rather stay out of prison if I can. What sort of life is this dying man talking about? And it is a great question because it is not the definition of life that our world currently uses, at least normally. It's not about what you can cram in. It's not about the experiences you can stuff in, the amount of things that you can collect, the sort of friends that you can gather. It's much simpler than that. In fact, it's far less complicated. It's a life of forgiveness. It's a life of friendship with the God who made you. It's a life of a slate wiped clean. A life empowered by him to live for him. It's being in the relationship we were made for, living as the people that we were made to be. And that's through death, through the death of Jesus. It's a life that begins now so that when... Our hearts finally stop beating 
And one day they will. And when our lungs finally stop breathing, one day they will. So it's a life that continues with him. It's why as you read to Timothy, despite prison, despite probable death, there's a sense of optimism and hope, confidence. Because Paul knows it's not the end. Because Paul knows what life is really about. And it's why he writes with such an urgency, because this message must be guarded. But the thing is, we don't guard this message by locking it away. We guard it by telling others. And it's spreading. And so Paul is to tell Timothy, and Timothy is to pass on to others, reliable folk, who can tell others, and others, and others, and others, and down the generations... Gospel work is about bringing life. How is it passed on? It's passed on through people, secondly. Gospel work happens through normal people. 2 Timothy, we'll see, is a letter full of people. Names. Real individuals. Some of them allies. Some of Paul's team, his associates. Some not doing so well. I think there are 23 people mentioned in total. But there's an emphasis you go through chapter by chapter on people telling people telling people. You see something of that in the first few verses. It's very striking. There's the generational nature of of passing on our faith to others. So you see that with family roots. Have a look at verse 3. Just as Paul points back to his ancestors, verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. See, Paul points back to his ancestors and so he points Timothy back to his as well. Verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. We, we love the big dramatic stories of conversion, don't we? We love the celebrity who becomes a Christian. But don't despise the little conversions. Just the vital nature, bread and butter, day in, day out, low level, normal life situations where Jesus is spoken of and life is lived for him. So important. Friends, if you're here as parents, you're blessed with children, do keep these verses in mind. Of course, there isn't a one-size-fits-all to family life, but I'd urge you from experience to persevere and to have regular planned opportunities to talk of the Lord Jesus with your kids, to open the Bible with them, to pray for them, to discuss stuff, but then to be open and flexible when opportunities come, as questions arise. Be active. What are they learning at school? What truths are you being taught at school, kids? Are those true truths? And if your parents here, I'm sure you will know, of course, that you cannot simply outsource the spiritual development of your children to junior church on a Sunday morning. There's another 166 hours in the week. You need to be investing, just as Timothy heard from his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice. And pray for your kids. Pray for them. Pray that the Lord would do extraordinary things in them and through them, the the generation to come and beyond. 
It's one of the striking things for me when you read of Paul and his relationship with Timothy. He is very warm. Verse 2, he describes him as a dear son. He recalls his tears, verse 4. But then you see the prayer in verse 3. I constantly remember you in my prayers. That striking prayer life for Paul means a life of prayer. Consistent, persevering daily. There's this very warm, caring, prayerful relationship that that goes against the flow of just sort of regular Bible study. It's often what we think about as we think of discipling people. It can easily be the case in different church cultures that it's all very arm's length. It's about the impartation of knowledge and understanding, which, which is good, but I guess that's a bit easy, isn't it? Here we have Paul, who's often wrongly, bizarrely portrayed as a bit of a cold fish, loving Timothy. Praying for Timothy. Allowing himself to be vulnerable for Timothy's good. Prayerful Paul. Tearful Timothy. This model of discipleship. So, one thing I'd love us to think about Magdalen Road in this new sort of post-summer academic year is thinking how we can be better at intentional discipleship. That is, the kind of costly pouring of ourselves out into the lives of others. It's something leaders and teachers like Paul and Timothy have to do, of course, but I think it's something for all of us as well. There are teachers and we're all teachers. We've all got stuff to say. So my challenge for us, this, this Vision Sunday this year, is to focus in on the third of our vision statements, which is to care and to disciple people from different backgrounds through Christ-like relationships. So I reckon this. Pretty much for each of us, we eat three meals a day. If you're here and you're new and you're a student, that is what you're meant to do. Three (laughs) meals a day. If you're not managing that, come talk to us. Three meals a day, seven days a week. I'm not great at maths, but I think three times seven is... 21. Great. So my challenge is this. Why not deliberately try and meet with someone each week to eat? But then perhaps more than just to eat. You see, the thing is, I'm sitting by my desk eating my lunch, and you're sitting by your desk eating your lunch, so why don't you have lunch together? And why don't you read the Bible together, maybe, or read a book beforehand and talk about it as you have your lunch together? Or just to pray for each other. To be honest and open and accountable and vulnerable. Intentional, deliberate, planned discipleship. To do each other good. To encourage each other. Maybe it's someone from your home group. Maybe it's a housemate. Maybe it's somebody you know really, really well. And maybe it's not. Maybe you want to be pushed completely out of your comfort zone. And actually, you just want to go meet with someone who you've never spoken to. Maybe it's breakfast, lunch, tea, dinner, or a coffee, or something, but one person once a week. Somewhere where the conversation is more than just the weather. What do you think? The thing is, it's not an extra meeting, is it? Because you're eating anyway. 
And it just means you eat together. I wonder if we need to take this challenge, this example from Paul and Timothy of, of investing in others, of being vulnerable, of pouring our lives out into others deliberately. Wouldn't it be amazing, wouldn't it be brilliant to be a church where there's this complex web of relationships where everyone is intentional and vulnerable and discipling one another, growing together, maturing each other, leaving this legacy behind us for the next generation. All kinds of people investing in all kinds of people. But you're thinking, you don't know my week. You don't know how busy I am. And that just sounds pretty scary. I'm happy to talk about the weather, but crossing that line into things that are more important, I'm fairly allergic to that. I don't like being vulnerable. What's the answer when we say we can't do it on our own? Well, thirdly, gospel work is enabled by God. I came across this extraordinary quote from a guy called Oswald Chambers recently. He says this. He says, God can either achieve his purpose through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. Or he chose and used somebodies when they renounced their dependence on their natural abilities and resources. You see, God uses nobodies or somebodies who trust him. I take it that's all of us. When we feel like we can't manage, when we feel like we can't cope, it's always how he's done it. It's always been his plan. Too easily we slip into thinking, I'm not up to scratch for God. Perhaps when I get that thing in my life sorted, when I I know what I'm doing about jobs, when I understand a bit more about my faith, when life gets a bit less hectic, then, then I'll be useful. But I don't think that's the point. The point is, we won't ever reach that place where we are sorted and ready and then useful. That's not the way it works. The way it works is we recognise we're nobodies or we just trust him. We look to him to equip us. We say, Lord, we really can't do this. Please help us. Lord, it's about you and your glory. Help me to do what you want me to do, please. And it's the kind of thing that we forget very quickly. So Paul reminds Timothy from the very start of the letter This is the way God works. You can imagine Timothy, he gets the letter, you get a long letter, what do you do? You kind of scan through it. Timothy opens the letter, he's scanning through, he begins to sweat. Breathing gets a bit shallow. Panic starts to set in. So, Paul, you're passing on to me. Do you remember me? And so Paul says, verse 2, grace mercy and peace from God. He builds the whole letter on the fact that God equips us to do the things that he calls us to do. Grace, mercy and peace, I take, is is a promise and a prayer. Grace is God's kindness, constant kindness, to those who do not deserve it. Mercy is his constant love for those who are helpless and hopeless. Peace, peace for those who are anxious 
and troubled and restless. Grace, mercy and peace from God, Timothy, for you. But then look verses 6 and 7. Timothy, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul's reminding Timothy of the time when he was set apart for church leadership. You can read it back in 1 Timothy. He was prayed for, he was equipped. But the thing I find striking in these verses is the fact that God, God has equipped him for a task, but he's been equipped in a way that he is not finished. You see, it's not fully developed. Timothy, you've got to fan it into flame. You've got to work at it. You've got to cultivate it. You've got to get better at it. You've got to take effort. He's not the finished article. Isn't that striking? He needs to be nurtured and grown and developed and matured. The danger is we can be comfortable and either we're just lazy and not bother or we just make do with the stuff that God's given us. But the call is to put it into practice and to grow, to fan it into flame. That might be word ministry gifts, leadership gifts, as, as I take it primarily and, and originally we're talking here. Maybe you're part of the Spurgeons team who heads out and preaches in different places around Oxfordshire, preaches at Magdalen Roads. Maybe you speak on a camp or Bible studies with a friend or home groups, those kinds of things. Or, or all the other kinds of gifts that God has given you. I take it the call for each of us is to faithfully use those gifts to fan them into flame. Of course, the problem is the more we use them, the quicker we get and the less reliant we are, the more complacent we can be. We stop fanning. I take it the, the fanning into flame is a lifelong thing, growing and developing and flourishing. Friends, you know those gifts that God has given you the gifts he's given you for the rest of us, for the good of the church, fan them into flame. Use them. Develop them. Put the hours in. Put the hard work in. Keep, keep looking to him. Keep going. Because he's given them to you for the church. And there's the challenge again in verse 7. Just like Timothy... God calls each of us to minister beyond our natural ability. Say that again. God calls each of us to minister beyond our natural ability. We're in a place where we have to rely on him. We have to remember again it's not about us, but it's about God enabling us. For the spirit God gave us doesn't make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. It seems Timothy is naturally timid. He's a bit of a wuss. Timothy, take courage. Remember power. Remember love. Remember self-discipline. The Lord has given these things to you in his spirit. He's equipped you. I think it is what Timothy will need for the urgent and immediate, but for the lifelong as well. So the immediate, he needs power in the midst of opposition from those outside the church, but from the inside of the church as well. We'll see in weeks to come those he has to oppose, disagree with. He needs love, and this is extraordinary, because he must love those who oppose him. 
He must be gentle with them and patient with them. And he needs self-discipline. I take it because in the midst of the stress, he needs a level-headedness, a calmness, so he can clearly discharge the duties of his ministry. Take care in how you respond, Timothy, in the heat of the battle. I wonder as well whether he needs this self-discipline for a sort of disciplined doctrinal orthodoxy. To be disciplined in what he believes and teaches. When you've got false teachers saying all kinds of stuff that our itching ears want to hear and the, the crowds are flocking around them, the temptation's there to, to just maybe add a bit of what they're saying into our message. Timothy is to be disciplined and controlled in not becoming like them and in treating them well. So you see Timothy, you see Morton Rose, we, we might sense something of the monumental task ahead of us, the plans for the future to pass the message on to the next generation, to build up leaders, to, to encourage and invest, to care for and disciple, to guard the gospel. But we're never left on our own to accomplish it. It's not about us. Maybe you you are a bit of a Timothy and you look ahead and you just feel anxious. And you look around and you feel out of your depth. And you feel the weight of the task in passing the message on, in investing in others, in being, making yourself vulnerable so that other people are allowed to affect you and how you feel. That's good. It's good that you feel anxious. It's good that you feel the weight of the task. It's good that you feel out of your depth. That's the way it's meant to be. We're meant to acknowledge our weaknesses and we're meant to look back to him and we know that he is with us. It is his mission. This is his thing. He just uses broken people like us to do it. Let's pray. So, Father, we acknowledge our weakness before you. We acknowledge that we are Timothy-like. And so we thank you that you're the God who uses people like us to accomplish your purposes, to hold on to and to pass on the gospel. Father, we long that we might be that kind of church. A church that knows that we have the message of life. A church that loves people and invests in people. And a church that looks to you. Looks to you to equip and enable. Meet us please in our weakness. Use us in the mess of life. Keep our eyes fixed on you and not on ourselves. I thank you that this is your mission. Thank you for the privilege, the fact that you use broken people like us. In your son's name we pray, and for his glory, not for our own. Amen.